This is Top Floor, episode 69. You can find the show notes at topfloorpodcast.com forward slash episode forward slash 69. Welcome to Top Floor with Susan Berry. This weekly podcast ride up to the top floor features tangible tips and excellent stories from the experts and characters who elevate hospitality. And now your host and elevator operator, Susan Berry. Welcome to the show. Josiah McKenzie got his start in a mom and pop converted lighthouse hotel on the coast of California, where he had to do everything from changing the sheets to checking in guests. But he spent most of his career working for hospitality tech companies. Josiah and I met online many moons ago when we were both doing a lot of writing about online reputation. And while my thoughts went to an internet graveyard somewhere, Josiah turned his interest into a hospitality marketing blog that ultimately had 70,000 monthly readers. After stints at three hotel tech companies with distinctly different areas of focus, Josiah is back to online publishing with his company, Benchmark Research Partners, and his publishing platform, hospitalityoperations.com. We are going to get into all of it, but before we jump in, we need to answer the call button. The emergency call button is our hotline for hospitality professionals and randoms off the street who have burning questions. If you would like to submit a question, you can call or text me at 850-404-9630. Today's question was submitted by Lucy. A lot of times, Josiah, they put like this long explanation. She just jumps right into the question. So I'm going to too. How can I evaluate the trustworthiness of research or reports put out by corporations? Wouldn't they just skew the results in their favor? What an excellent question for you. I'm sure you have thoughts. What are they? My advice would be to look into the methodology of how the research was conducted, where, when, who participated. And most reputable research providers will will give a sense of who are the participants of the study. Uh, it's important to dig into that because I've seen research all over the board in terms of uh, seniority, in terms of participants, in terms of who is is kind of uh, providing input into the the overall takeaways. And so, just because a company puts research out does not mean it's it's invalid. I think just understand the context of of who's taking part in it. Um, companies have uh, resources to conduct studies that other entities don't and so can be valuable participants in industries like hospitality. I think, you know, one piece to consider for Lucy is also that companies will conduct this research because they want to know the answer. They may not have an answer in mind when they start a study or an investigation like this, but they're trying to figure out what the market's looking for or where there's a hole in the offering that's currently available. So they conduct research to try to figure that out for themselves. And then once they do, they're like, well, hey, we might as well share this with the world. So, you know, I'm a very cynical and suspicious person person, but I absolutely have found value in looking at all kinds of data, including that that's produced by a particular company. 
All right. So let's go back in time. How did you get the job at the Converted Lighthouse Hotel? And why did you leave? It was an interesting story. So I actually started my studying abroad in Dublin, in Ireland, and had the chance while I was studying abroad to travel around quite a bit. Uh, being on a student budget, I had very little money to spend. And so it kind of worked out because you could buy flights from Dublin, which was the hub of Ryanair and a few other discount airlines. So I remember getting flights for 5 euros and it was just blew my mind. But I, again, like had very little money to spend. And so that meant I ended up staying uh, many of those nights in, in hostels, right? Which have, have a, a great tradition, especially in Europe, of people you know, kind of staying in these, these sorts of accommodations. What I really enjoyed about it was uh, just the communal aspect of it. I remember I, I did these trips solo. So all my friends kind of did these kind of group trips in different parts of Ireland. And I was like, no, I want to see Spain. I want to see France. And so... Oh, for I, I, five euro, why not? For five euro, why not? Right? And so I did the trip solo, but I found that everywhere I would go, I would make instant friends because we'd all be cooking our dinner together in the kitchen. The hostel might organize these group trips. So anyway, I, I fell in love with hostility. I was like, this is the best thing that has ever been invented. I love this. It's incredible. <laughs> so once that experience wrapped, um, I was living in um, the San Francisco Bay Area with, with my uncle um, after I got out of school. And I was like, man, I, I really want to add some of this back into my life. I want to somehow experience the hosteling uh, culture again. And so I got connected to Hosteling International, uh, which had a uh, California branch and then through there met Chris Bauman and Janice Pratt, who were the proprietors of a property that was part of the Hostelling International uh, group. But it was it was very unique because as you mentioned, it was a it was a lighthouse property. So they had a couple little bungalows of of um bunk beds. And they also had a bunch of uh these kind of like little not bungalows, but little kind of uh shacks throughout the property. <laughs> like cottages. Uh, they probably like call them cottages. cottages. Cottages, yes, yes. It was let's um but anyway, so it was it was incredible because I remember driving up there and um, Chris is just this an amazing artist and um, guy. He has this long ponytail and he just like looked like a, a man of the sea. And it was like it was, a, it was like uh, a foggy, cold, you know, California coastal day. And I saw this lighthouse and <laughs> Chris took me on this walk around the property and I was instantly fell in love. And I was like, this is this is what I want to be a part of. And so. I um yeah, I ended up getting a job there. It was um part-time job. So I, you know, worked um uh, a couple day blocks at a time. I would stay on property. And as you mentioned, I would do everything from cleaning the rooms. It was very um uh kind of sparsely staffed. And so I would often be the only person there. Uh well, Chris and Janice may have been somewhere else. They had two little kids at the time. And so I just learned so much about hospitality from them, but also being in this environment. And maybe some of our listeners will relate, but if you worked at a small property, you have to do so much, right? And I think that accelerated my learning of what it's like to be a provider of hospitality. And I just had so much fun because I would meet everyone from you know German tourists doing a trip uh, kind of up and down the California coast to people from the East Coast to people backpacking that were from... Uh, Asia. And I, I just met people from around the world, all different kind of reasons for staying at this property. And I had so much fun uh, doing it. And so I did that for a little while. To the reason I left, I... Because um, you were exhausted? <laughs> it was exhausting, but it was it was just very meaningful. And I had so much fun doing it. And so um, 
I, I ended up transitioning to work in the technology side of our industry, uh, which which we might get into, but that was kind of the ultimate reason of, of transitioning out. But I had so much fun and learned a ton through that process. Is that property still around? It is. It is. Oh, good. We'll have yeah. to link to it in the show notes. I want to check yeah. out what the lighthouse looks like. Absolutely. The Point Montara Lighthouse Hostel. It's uh it's it's worth checking out. Awesome. What interested you about the tech side of the business and sort of helped led to that transition and then kept you there for so long? Yeah. So I guess if I think about kind of what led me to working in tech, I, I think there's sort of two components of this. And our listeners might find it interesting to kind of think about this for their own careers or as they're, you know, maybe maybe making the case for others working in the industry. And I kind of see this on two levels. First is just kind of the opportunity that travel and hospitality provides in your career, right? There's so many interesting things happening in the world. You can work in so many different areas, but but why travel and hospitality, right? I think just from a market size, it's a massive addressable market, right? So um, you have, you know, kind of at least pre-pandemic, more than a billion people crossing international borders every year. Obviously, a ton of domestic travel. There's just a lot of people doing it. And if you're offering something in the space, um, it's just something a lot of people do, right? Um, it's a huge economic force, right? So tourism represents, you know, around 10% of the world's GDP. Um, there's just a lot of money involved in this. And it affects directly or indirectly so many different sectors, right? And so travel and tourism affects, you know, everything from a destination's um, perception to investment in that destination. It can be a driver of economic growth, uh, creates job opportunities. It creates kind of quality of life. There's an improvement opportunity there. Um, it's a very experiential business. And, and this is, you know, probably even the most true in hospitality where there's almost infinite opportunities for differentiation, right? And so um, you kind of see this opportunity where you can be highly creative, right? And you kind of think about like, what is your interpretation of, of hospitality? Um, and then finally, it, it's it's very ripe for disruption, right? And so if you look at studies by McKinsey and others, you kind of see the technology um, maturity or, or technology adoption. And hospitality is often in you know a laggard or kind of like very behind... Um, and you know, we can get into all the reasons why, but it's it, it's 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 kind of behind the the times as compared to other uh, industries. And so that's what I was expecting you to lead with. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's a big opportunity, I think. But it's important to look at the size of the market and the impact because I think as you think about careers or you think about kind of doing something in the space, that's something to to keep in mind. So I think all of these factors of market size, kind of the amount of money involved here. Just the experiential and uh, nature of hospitality makes technology here so interesting because there's this chance to uh, save time for staff. There's a chance to take care of all the boring parts of a hospitality business and let the creative piece, let the experiential piece shine. But then there's this kind of built-in advocacy and willingness and, and people want to talk about it, right? And so I think all of those factors make tech really interesting for me. One of the things that you do every month on LinkedIn, which I think is really cool, is you post your results. So you are putting up your page views, your email subscribers, the number of pieces of content you've put out, all that stuff. I think that's particularly interesting in the hospitality industry. Maybe not so much in tech. I think tech people do more of that stuff. But in hospitality, 
Appearances are very important. And there's not always a huge appetite for experimentation. And you know how people will do like failure Friday or fail fast. There's not really an appetite for that in the hotel business and in hospitality as a whole. So I'm really interested in why you decided to do this part of your work in public and what kind of response you're getting. Mm. I, I, I'll get to that. I think you what you brought up just kind of made me think of something um, because I think that should change. I think that that sort of mentality of everything needs to be perfect um, should change. I, I want to share a quick story because I just talked to um, a guy, Ken Barber, who's here in the San Francisco area. He spent his started his career as an economist, worked in tech, and then just recently launched a hospitality brand. But his whole point was, you know, could, we could unlock so much innovation if we had adopt this sort of like, let's try things, let's kind of share what's working let's engage people. He built a whole group of folks that was really passionate about experiencing hospitality kind of in relationship with the outdoors. Um, by first, he kind of like led little hikes. He organized weekend hikes in the area. And then he found that all the people going with him was like, this is great, but we need a place to stay. And he was like, okay, well, what could that look like? And so over the course of, I think it's like three or four years, he ended up going from like leading hikes and wanting to build an app for hikes so now he has the Bay Area's top-rated glamping destination because he went on this whole journey not want, intending to start there, but he found that's what people wanted. And he he discovered that through testing and kind of sharing his results. And people would see it and they're like, okay, you know, that's something I want to be a part of. So I think there's a big opportunity for us collectively. Back to why I do that, it, it, it's related to that. I want to kind of learn and grow together with other industry participants. It's also to hold, my, hold myself accountable. I... Um, publish hotel operations and hospitality daily because I want to provide value. I want to help us all get better in providing hospitality. And one of the ways to do that is to see if people find value in this, right? If they're engaging with that. So there's metrics we can look at to understand, is this resonating with people and how is it resonating? And so it's to kind of, you know, as someone who, you know, works for himself, I want to hold myself accountable and have, you know, kind of a group that I report to. And that is the people I'm looking to serve. And that's why I share those numbers. Your positions in various tech companies have been sort of in the commercial strategy arena. So content marketing, business development, demand gen, kind of in that whole world where I also live. You also ran an extremely popular hospitality marketing blog for several years. And yet, now you have launched a site that's focused on operations. As anyone who is listening that works on property will absolutely tell you, that is switching sides in such a major way. That's like, I was a dog person for years and years. And now, no thank you, I'm a cat person. So why the switch? Good analogy. Um, it does seem to be different. But I guess the way that I see it is it, it's so interconnected. And I think across each of the roles that I've had, I've seen performance financially and hospitality actually comes from from smart operations. And I, I look at operations holistically. It's just how you run the business, right? And so how you run the business does touch on areas where operations may not be in your job title. But that kind of way of running your business, everything from frontline associates and how they interact and kind of the processes you have to how you think holistically around gathering data and understanding what's going on in the business, what's going on in the market, is really key from an investment perspective. I spent the last couple of years at an investment management technology and got to see across thousands of investors uh, what the best ones were doing, right? And 
the best ones have an insane focus on operations. And I was I was just talking with, with Scott Curran, who's the chief operating officer at Renison Hotels, which is an owner operator. And people like him are really helpful for me to understand this because they're kind of like on all aspects of right that they they work across brands, they own the real estate, right? They're also running the business. And what people like him tell me are the, the big opportunity with operations is allows you to go in and change those levers of what's going to ultimately create more demand for the property and create more long-term sustainable demand. And that's the key, right? Because that's going to increase the asset value, right? And that's what drives financial returns overall. I am primarily focused in my research and my writing and case studies on those operational functions, right? So just like, what is a good guest service look like? And Got what it. does experience design look like? Because um, I think that's fundamental to driving those investment returns. Okay. Having explored so many different aspects of marketing, commercial strategy, you worked for a revenue management company for a while, you worked for an investment technology, an online reputation technology. So again, sort of that commercial strategy arena. What do you think are the opportunities for technology innovation on the operation side of the hotel business? To your point, are, are there places where technology can make a big difference in the day-to-day operation of the hotel? I believe it's something around automation. It's not going to surprise anyone. Um, I think we're, we're seeing some incredible advances in AI, you know, recently, especially that you know we may have, we've played around with, with Chat GPT or you know some of these um, uh, kind of AI-driven technologies. So if you look at kind of the staffing challenges that we faced recently combined with these technological breakthroughs, it, it feels like there's something there. What I'm hearing from hoteliers is the biggest opportunity lies in streamlining workflows for staff. Um, so it's a little more staff-focused than guest-focused. Um, the, I was talking to the chief operating officer at Dorchester Collection that has you know some of the most iconic hotels in the world. And his primary focus for technology, he is... He's, crystal clear on this. And it was like, it's it's my decision criteria is like, does this save time for my staff? Full stop, right? Mm-hmm. That's it. And I appreciate that clarity, right? Because there's so many things that could be done and we can get kind of carried away with this or that. But for people like him, if you save time for your staff, that means, you know, a couple more seconds or more minutes that they can then spend either you know, face-to-face with a guest, spending more time with them, listening to them, or coming up with better ways to provide better hospitality. So it really comes down to you know that time savings, I think, especially for staff is, is what I'm really focused on right now. I feel like there have been a number of great innovations, probably more on the restaurant side of our industry than the hotel side, in scheduling and allowing team members to sign up for their own shifts. And you know, you put some heuristics in place, rules of thumb, like, all right, you have to have one weekend day, you have to have one PM shift. And other than that, you pick what you can do. Then all of a sudden, the schedule comes out and everyone has signed up for their own shifts. So all of the angst and arguing about the schedule, poof, goes away because they signed up for themselves. I think there's a big opportunity there, right? Because I... You know, so many of us kind of got started in the hospitality industry by accident. It's like almost universally asked people how they got started. They were planning to do something else. They got started in this industry. And for one reason or another, I think the more that we can engage people that maybe have other interests, maybe they're 
an artist or they, they're doing something else and this it becomes a way to kind of pay the bills and it kind of fills in with other areas of their life. I think there's so many people that we could attract to the industry if, you know, through smart scheduling and things like that. 100%. In addition to hotelOperations.com, you started Benchmark Research Partners in April of 2022. What kind of research do you do? It really ranges. So what I try to focus on are what changes are happening in the world right now and how can we learn together? So it's peer-driven research. If you think about, you know, why do you go to a conference or a happy hour, industry happy hour, something like that? In essence, you want like you want to talk to others, right? It's like, how are you dealing with this? Or what's your plan over here? Or kind of like, how are you thinking of investing there? You and I have been to so many of these events, right? And what I, I realize is like, hey, there, there's a better way where that's still important socially, but if if the objective is to learn from our peers, like why don't we kind of focus on this in a more structured way. So that's basically what I do. I go out and talk to, you know, dozens of people around a certain topic and talk about kind of what their experience has been, what their plans are moving forward. Um, and then, you know, in exchange for those conversations, I'll roll up all the data, obviously anonymized and aggregated, and then give people a sense, okay, for this type of technology or this big industry trend, you know, what are your peers doing? What are they experiencing? What results are they getting? Right. So you're getting insight, not just from a quote unquote expert, but people like you in the business who are responsible for the same things that are dealing with the same challenges and you can see what's working for them. What's the most surprising thing you've discovered in a research project so far? I think one that stands out is the wide variance of outcomes for technology use. And this may or may not be surprising, but all technology is not created equal. And I think there's this common thought that if, oh, if we just had more money to spend on tech and we just bought something, we'd be okay. But I, I did a study a little while ago around hotel technology investments and, and outcomes. And so many people had experienced dramatic failures when it came to, to hotel tech. And I think that also gives people heartburn, right? You're like, oh, I went down that path. I spent a lot of money. We did a bunch of training. Never again. And that's one of the reasons why tech adoption hospitality is um, is slower, right? Because people have experienced it. So all that to say, this really highlights the importance of talking to potential technology providers uh, in, in depth, right? Not having some kind of out-of-the-box checklist RFP, but really getting you know, the strategy, but also talk, talking to your peers, right? And this is where you know learning from others who have implemented something becomes so important. But um, it it really surprised me just how wide and so many people that had such dramatic failures with technology because <laughs> some of the companies out there are not great. And were people having success and failure with the same thing? Or was it more of just, we tried to install a new PMS and it this one was great and this one was terrible? I don't know if that question makes sense. Yeah, I I would like to do more research on this, but the research I did was more the latter, right? Gotcha. So there's just some companies out there, and I know companies and products do evolve, but there's some out there that significantly underperform the others. And sometimes you have this feeling, it's like, oh, well, I'll just pick one off the shelf or I know this person. <laughs> it's it's um it's not a good way to go. Um, there, There's some providers out there that strongly outperform. And part of that's the tech, but part of it is the culture of the company. Part of it is how they invest in training. Part of it's the uh, customer success teams they have. So, like, are you going to be paired with someone who whose job it is and whose like scorecard is you succeeding, right? And there are a lot of technology companies like that out there, 
But um, but that's where due diligence is really important when you're buying tech. We like to make sure that our listeners come away from every single episode of Top Floor with some practical, specific tips to try either in their businesses or in their personal lives. We have both been experimenting with ChatGPT, as you mentioned earlier, which is a dialogue-based AI language model, which means you know, as a user, you can type in a question or type in a command and get a surprisingly well-written human-sounding response. How do you think that someone could use AI for creating content like we both do on a regular basis? And should they? They definitely should. They should start out with doing, I think what you and I did was asking it to create jokes and obscure <laughs> insults in the format of their favorite author or comedian. Yes. It's hilarious. It's amazing. You need to play around with this just to kind of get a sense of what it can do. Uh, in terms of more serious content, I'm I'm still experimenting. I think it's a time for experimentation. I will say that it's been a long time since I've seen a technology and I've been as wowed by uh, something. Um, it often sounds... As you mentioned, it's, it's well-written, sounds human. It's often very confident. Sometimes it's wrong and highly confident, which is a little concerning. <laughs> yes. Have you had any wrong answers? I've only had one so far. I haven't really kind of pushed it. Uh, I, I haven't. I haven't seen a ton of wrong, but I've. I've kind of like talked with different engineers, and and they've showed me stuff. Where I'm like, man, that that's just off. <laughs> you know, like it. But by and large, it, it's it's pretty accurate. Um, I, I think in terms of like how we use it, I think those of us creating content, you know, often do research. Like we're googling things, we're trying to find things. It's already part of our process, right? Before that, we were in libraries trying to find information. So this is almost just an extension of that, potentially part of the research process and kind of something to better understand a topic. There is never going to be a replacement for a strong point of view on something and um, real-life examples that are unique to your lived experience. And so I think um, where this is, I'm trying to... I think it will play a role, but I'm trying to figure out that and... I think the only advice I'd have to all of us is like, how do we dial up the humanity and what makes us unique that the world's best chatbot's never going to replicate? <laughs> I think like what is going away is sort of like content-free content marketing, where it's like, okay, here, let's put up a listicle, let's you know, kind of have an article for the sake of it. That's going to become useless. So you probably should have cut that already if you haven't <laughs> cut it. It's just it's it's not going to drive benefit for for your company anymore. I feel the same way about this AI as I do about something like Grammarly. I pay for a like, you know, premium subscription to Grammarly, not because I often have typos, but because I can't afford to have any. And so I, you know, I'm not like, oh, let me rewrite this whole thing because Grammarly said it sucks. But it does find those occasional things where I use the wrong word or, you know, used a homonym or whatever the case may be. I feel sort of the same way about this. Like, it's such a great place to start and get your ideas flowing, but it's very generic. It's well written, but it's very generic and lacking in personality. So, People who have, to your point, strong points of view and discernible personalities are never going to be written out of the story by this AI. I can promise you that. Well, this is why I'm very bullish on the Top Floor podcast. And if anyone's just listening to this episode, <laughs> hit that subscribe button, share it with your friends because 
there's uh you know the the fun that you have on this show is so clear in every episode uh and so there's no AI that's coming for top floor. I'll tell you that. Excellent. Josiah is an AI, by the way, and I programmed him to say that. So thank you very much. <laughs> the media landscape is experiencing yet another round of turmoil. When I hear people talking about this, they're like, the media is in trouble. It feels like it's been in trouble the entirety of my adult life. But either way, this is at big companies like CNN, smaller industry-specific publications all across the board. There's just turmoil, turmoil, people getting laid off, all this stuff. If someone wants to start a media or publishing company, publishing platform, what are one or two things you would recommend they do first? You've now done this at least twice, maybe more than twice, but twice that I know about. So I have no doubt that you've got some good suggestions. I'd recommend starting on social, uh, share a lot, test a lot, learn a lot. Uh, it's going to be the fastest feedback loop. I think the the wrong way to do it is is like start a, a blog and, and just kind of publish there and expect to learn. So it, it's all about seeing what people will respond to and kind of what, what's worth sharing. And there's no shortcut to that. Just have to test and learn. I think with regards to the media landscaping um, in trouble, it, it's helpful to zoom out, right? And so I think, you know, for hundreds of years, people have been, you know, kind of printing stuff and, you know, sharing this with their friends or people in their community. And so there's always been publishers. I think obviously we're all publishers now because we, you know, have a phone in our pocket that can share anything with the world at any point. So the, the challenges now, I think, are more creative and thinking about kind of what is your tone of voice and and what are you sharing. And I see big opportunities ahead for for all of us. I, I think you know we can all be uh, public. We all don't need to be a media company, but I talk to a lot of hotel operators and they see so much benefit by you know just sharing what they're doing on LinkedIn. And they're saying, okay, hey, you know, I, I'm posting a role now. All kinds of people are are contacting me because they they know me and they know what we're doing and. So, you know, whether you're trying to hire or attract partners or raise investment, there's just so much value for all of us, even if I'm a front office manager in sharing stuff. And so I think that's the, the big opportunity I see for us today. Do you get the sense that LinkedIn users are more shy than users of other social media platforms? I don't think they're more shy. I think they're more considered. I think they think about the professional implications of what they share more and probably for for good reason. But I see a lot of fun stuff on there. I see a lot of creative content and I think we're just getting started on LinkedIn. I think that's true. And I think people have to warm up. I read a stat that something like 60% of LinkedIn users never comment, react, share, or do anything with any posts. But they still read them because people talk to me about stuff all the time. And I'm like, I didn't even know I was connected with you on LinkedIn. How did this happen? All right. Shifting gears. I know you have traveled a bazillion places for 5 or 10 euro per ticket. What is your most unexpected, counterintuitive, or even weird travel tip? One thing I really like to do is talk to my friends in cities around what they like to do in their own city on a weekend. Because I think sometimes the the challenge when you ask people for like a restaurant recommendation or something, they'll like give you that like once a year kind of thing that they go to. But the sort of traveling that I like to do with my wife is more, you know, let's find a neighborhood or two and walk around it and just kind of like what are the fun neighborhoods and the fun kind of like streets to walk? And so I, I find kind of like, what do you just do on a Saturday or a Sunday in like in your neighborhood to to provide some of the best suggestions? 
Um, I had someone tell me once something once that I found kind of useful. It's like he's really into coffee and he's like, find the, he was like, there's the third wave or fourth wave coffee shop in a neighborhood. And you're like, if you have a really hip coffee shop, then there's going to be like great shopping around that. And it's like, I've tried that in the last couple of trips and it's been amazing. So it's something maybe that that's worth uh, trying. That's a hundred percent accurate. And you sound like a man after my husband's heart. This is what we're always looking for. Coffee, record store, ramen, and um, a brewery. Like if we can find, you know, two out of those four, three out of those four in the same neighborhood, then we know that's an awesome neighborhood. That's where we want to hang out. That's where we want to stay. Absolutely. Well, this sounds like the lower hate in San Francisco. <laughs> it's my favorite neighborhood. Uh, and it has all of those and in abundance. So yes. next, next time you're here. <laughs> awesome. We have reached the fortune telling portion of our show. So now is the time to predict the future, cast some spells, wave our magic wand, all that good stuff. What is a prediction that you have about the future of publishing and content creation? Well, this is great because I've been on like a Harry Potter uh, a rewatch spree. So oh, like really? every night. I signed up for like the the Peacock Advance or whatever the the tiers we don't get ads and like every night we're watching like twenty minutes so I'm like deep in this uh this world this is that's great. amazing um, okay so hold on then <laughs> before you answer I have had literally hundreds I'm being hyperbolic literally fives of people tell me that I am Hermione Granger do you agree or disagree. I, this feels like a a, a trap question. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, you don't have to I answer. Think this, this sounds like a poll that we need to put on LinkedIn. Perfect. I, I think perfect. we need to let uh, involve the people. Okay. Well, <laughs> we can ask Chat GPT and see what the AI thinks. Is Susan Berry Hermione Granger? <laughs> I like that. <laughs> okay. Sorry to interrupt you. <laughs> so back to um, back to predictions of the future around publishing. Um, I, I think we're just getting started on on LinkedIn. I, I think it's it's obviously been around for what fifteen years or so, a, a massive adoption. But what I'm seeing is kind of far more people get involved in in kind of what we were talking about around. It's not just like the thought leaders or like publishers or authors that you'd expect to be involved. I'm seeing frontline staff get involved. I'm seeing general managers get involved, and they're just sharing photos, like team gatherings. They're sharing kind of amenities they're offering. And I'm seeing this at a organizational level. So like management companies like Remington, like I talked to a few of their folks and they're like, no, we, we encourage this among our teams, right? Because it allows us to um, you know, share best practices. I'm, I'm seeing it at kind of individual uh, hotels, right? They're saying like, hey, I'm, I don't know, in this like remote part of the country and like there's not a lot of people I can learn from. So now I can stay dialed into other general managers and it's working for them. And so I'm just seeing this, amazing opportunity of like idea sharing and learning from each other and people benefiting from that. And so I, I think we're we're just getting started. And that's that's the one place to be if I had to be one spot. Excellent. If you could like Harry Potter, wave a magic wand and get rid of one type of LinkedIn post, what would it be? Um well, so I don't know if, if you've seen some of these posts, but there, there's some that like have this like highly dramatic emotional story that like is kind of unclear where oh it God. goes. And it's like so manufactured. And I, maybe the first ones you see, like you think it's it's like this really sad story, but then like over time you like look through their feed and they're like have this really dramatic story and there's like no purpose. and it's just, like, <laughs> Or no drama for that matter. Uh, exactly. I call it LinkedIn poetry. It's like... 
I went to the store, space, 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 space. I picked up a cart. I mean, come on, dude, just tell us what happened. So bad. <laughs> so and I think silly. it's like people artificially trying to drive engagement, which works to a point, but I think their algorithms are going to get smarter and smarter where it's like, no, you actually have to like tell a good story <laughs> or you know, like have something interesting happen or share something valuable. So <laughs> I, I would, I would not be sad if some of those go away. <laughs> I have a post, you know, I keep like a note in my notes app. I keep post ideas all the time. And I have a post written that is about LinkedIn poetry. And I feel like now I need to post it this week. I'm going to do it in your honor. Maybe I'll wait till this episode comes out and I'll write a poem about it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Josiah, what is next for you and what's next for your company? Yeah, um, I'm really excited about just kind of learning with the community of, of kind of how to, what are fresh ways of showing hospitality. So um, on Hospitality Daily, I'm, I have kind of like a couple minute chat with, with different providers around a fresh way that they're taking care of their associates and coworkers or their guests or their communities. Um, and really blown away by the kind of creativity out there. So it's going to be every day there'll be a new kind of fresh idea that you can use to show hospitality. Uh, and I think for hotel operations, it's just sharing a lot of how-to guides. Obviously, the world's changing a lot. And and my approach is always, you know, kind of do research, talk to a lot of people, kind of see what works, and then condense that into a post. And so excited to share some of that out with the community as well. Excellent. Okay, folks, before we tell Josiah goodbye, we are going to head down to the loading dock where all of the best stories get told. Going down. Josiah, what is a story you would only tell me on the loading dock? So it, it has to do with my first um, time I did any sort of public speaking. So um, we talked a little bit about my early blog. I was, I don't know, 21, 22. Uh, Are you so serious? I was, I was kind of just getting started. And I was, I was blogging, right? And it's kind of somewhat easy to be anonymous when you're blogging, right? So I was, I was blogging. I was like doing email interviews and stuff. So it's like, pretty private person. I was working at this property, but you know, like kind of doing my own little thing, right? And then I got this email from a conference organizer in Italy who is hosting this event called BTO, which is kind of a it's it's held in Florence. It's about innovation and travel and hospitality. I thought it was kind of a scam at first, but I remember seeing it and I was thinking like, oh man, I've always wanted to I hadn't been to Italy at that point. I was like, I always wanted to go. I always want to kind of like share my story with with some more people, but I had Never been on any sort of stage, right? And so I said, yes. I was like, what the heck? We're just going to go for it. So I had no idea. After I committed, I learned there's going to be, you know, more than a thousand people. They'd put me on the like main stage of, of this event. I was like, I have never done anything like this. So I spent the next six months. I joined Toastmasters. Did I, you really? Every, every day for, I think it was like two months. I had like practiced giving this like presentation. Um, I was like totally a fish out of water. Never did anything remotely but like that's it. That's so smart. Your approach. I mean, really. Being being naive is uh, sometimes a uh, a gift. But I ended up having a lot of fun. Hopefully, shared some interesting stuff in that presentation. But it was, I think, the you know takeaway for me is just like just say yes. I was absolutely terrified to do it, but just say yes to opportunities. Right? You like push through it. Like the older you is going to thank yourself. That led me to my first tech job led me to living in Europe. It totally changed my world, but like it was it was scary as anything when I first when I first got that. So let me ask you a question about Toastmasters since you brought it up. Do would you still do it? Would you still do it that way or would you 
go a different path. I think it's worth it. it it's yeah. a little bit cheesy, but I was... Well, I still am pretty introverted, but I was like, just... I had no experience doing anything like that. So there's something about being in a room, a safe place where you know you can get some practice. Um, and I think the other thing about speaking I've learned, I've done other stuff since then, it's just like knowing the material, right? And so anytime you can share out of your own experience or things you're really comfortable with, it takes the pressure away from having to have this like TED Talk style thing. <laughs> yes. And more about like, I'm here to share some stories and I'm here to help you. And I found that to be really useful in speaking. I will say though that an over-reliance on your own stories without like a cohesive narrative and a plan for how you're going to tell them is the kiss of death. And it is something that hoteliers consistently overestimate their ability to wing it. Do not wing it if you are flying across country and appearing before a thousand people on the main stage. That's my advice that nobody asked for. Josiah McKenzie, thank you so much for being here. I know our listeners got a lot of food for thought. And I really appreciate you riding up to the top floor. Thanks for having me, Susan. This was a lot of fun. Thank you for listening. You can find the show notes at topfloorpodcast.com forward slash episode forward slash 69. Top Floor is produced by John Albano, who also composed and performed our elevated elevator music with vocals by Cameron Albano. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues after you leave us a five-star review. You can subscribe to Top Floor on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Thanks for listening to the Top Floor Podcast at www.topfloorpodcast.com. Have a hospitality marketing question? Reach us at 850-404-9630 to be featured in a future episode. 